All right, then. We're going to start with number 316. At the Master's Desert Retreat in 1950, he spoke to me of the larger picture. He said, Lahiri Mahashaya, in a former incarnation, was King Janaka. There's a footnote down here about Janaka. Janaka was a famous king in the ancient India. He was a Raja Rishi, or royal Rishi, a royal great sage, a king and a sage. Janaka was the father of Sita, the wife of Rama. Sita is widely known as the heroine of the Ramayana and as the ideal woman. I hadn't really thought about that. That puts Lahiri Mahashaya right in the middle of the Ramayana, doesn't it? Wow. Master's right in the middle of the Bhagavata, the Mahabharata, and Lahiri's right in the middle of the Ramayana. Huh. I never, never put that together before. Okay. Um, that was why he took initiation from Babaji in a golden palace. He had lived in a palace before. Babaji formerly was Krishna, Master said. The Master had already told us that during Krishna's lifetime, he, and, he himself had been Arjuna. It seemed fitting, therefore, that what may have been the greatest literary work, his greatest literary work, his commentaries on the Gita, should have been destined for him to write. Let's see, I messed that sentence up completely. It seemed fitting, therefore, that what may have been his greatest literary work, his commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, should have been destined for him to write. That, he added, is why I am so close to Babaji in this life. Okay, there's other of those kinds of who was who and what lifetime that are very interesting. It's um, that whole train of thinking, which we can take from many different angles, of, of how many uh, notable historical figures Master said were previous incarnations of people related to our path. Um, Swamiji developed a theory on that, which was that This was just his theory. He never asserted it definitively. I mean, Master said the three wise men were Babaji, Lahiri, and Sri Yukteswar, which leaves open the question of whether Master himself was Jesus, which is always, you know, speculation that people wonder about. Um, He said that Lahiri was also Kabir in a past lifetime. And uh, there's a number of others. Seemingly Adi Shankaracharya was either Sri Yukteswar, a master, more likely master, and Babaji was the guru of Adi Shankaracharya. It just goes on and on. And he set up the Badrinath shrine, now that you think about it. It sort of gets very complicated. Swamiji came up with this theory that maybe uh, our, our group of masters has been more or less the guiding force for this whole planet for a very long time. Maybe planets have teams of saints and masters who are in charge of of their spiritual evolution over very long cycles. He didn't ever say it, that it was absolutely true. He just thought it was an intriguing idea. And from time to time, we just sort of, you know, floated out as something that one might wonder about. When master had his great samadhi in uh, August or September, I think it was August of 1948, which was just, yes, it was August, because Swami came in September. Um, For several days he was in Samadhi, and he was with Divine Mother, and he he was going all over the universe with Divine Mother, 
what that actually means in any terms comprehensible to my little brain. I have no idea, but that's what happened. And the nun sat there and took notes of the things he said in, in shifts the whole time it was going on. And Master also spoke as Divine Mother. She, he gave both sides of the conversation. He would, he would give his side and then he would give her responses and they wrote all this down. It's not really been published. It's only included at all in Durga Mata's book. And, uh, but part of it was Master said things like, oh, so that's how you do it. Which you, you just, you don't know where to put an idea like that. But there was this curiosity that was, that was seemingly being satisfied by Divine Mother revealing the, the secrets of creation to Master. I can't bring that to any more of a sensible point. However, when Swamiji sort of speculates, well, I wonder how it's really done. You know, I wonder how it's really happening. And in, uh, in the diaries of Lahiri Mahashaya, Lahiri Mahashaya spent, you know, many years, especially after he retired from his work, where he just sat in the, in the small, very small living room of the house, his family home in Varanasi, and he just sat 24 hours a day meditating there. And he would get up occasionally. He, he often, you know, would go long periods of time without leaving the room. He rarely left the house or he'd go out on the little balcony, but he just, he stayed there. But he was meditating very seriously that whole time. And he kept diaries which have only bits and pieces been translated into English. I think it's just not time yet for them to be universally known. One of the books that's supposedly written off of the diaries is extremely annoying because you can't tell what's the author's speculation and what's Lahiri's words. It's just a, it's, it's a very badly done book from the point of view of somebody like us who really wants to read it. But what Lahiri was doing all that time was he was conducting many experiments in his meditation, meditating in many different ways, going into different states of expanded awareness, exploring different avenues of creation. Now, all of it seems, you know, from our, what I can only call actually false understanding of what it means to be an incarnation. If, if you look at an incarnation like Master, where he had a tremendous amount of outward work to do, or even an incarnation like Swami Kriyananda, where he had tremendous amount of outward work to do, and he, he actually had to engage in the realities of this planet in order to do the work. He didn't just go like this and have all the money he needed. He had to find people to support him. He had to work hard. He had to start businesses. He had to struggle with people who didn't didn't understand. He had to find ways around government regulations. I mean, he just, everything that human beings had to deal with, he had to deal with all of it. He dealt with it with the energy, with powerful energy and powerful will, but he still had to deal with it. Even um, his, his horoscope was inauspicious for a monk. And you know, he went to the trouble to burn the horoscope and put the ashes in a bag and give it to his brother. He had to, deal with his father's attachment to him. You know, there, were just, there were lots and lots of issues. Um, and Swami Kriyananda certainly participated in this world. 
So there's something that they're doing which we don't really quite understand. Master talked about when I see that I have to incarnate and I see the personality I have to assume. He says at first it feels like a heavy overcoat on a hot day, but then I get used to it. So what I'm saying is that a, a an avatar with an outward mission has to participate in the fact that he's incarnated. So Lahiri Mahashaya's mission was much more inward. He didn't found organizations or anything like that, although he supported his family and held his job all the way to the point of his pension. But through much of that time, he was meditating all night, and then after he retired, he just sat in his room and just meditated all the time. But that doesn't mean he wasn't participating in the fact that he was incarnated and he was uh, demonstrating to us what it means to be a yogi in the world. Because that's what Master was showing us and more, even more clearly Swami was showing us. Or when Master was William the Conqueror, Fernando III, and had to secure his kingdom uh, for, for Christianity against uh, other disintegrating forces, he couldn't just snap his fingers and make it happen. He really had to fight. So Lahiri was also meditating as a yogi, as an incarnated yogi. And apparently in those diaries, he describes in detail his different experiments and all the different kinds of meditations and the things that he learned from his meditations. And that's what it, where his writing is. He inspired his disciples with other teachings, but his real writing, as I understand this, never having seen the books, but this is what I understand from the book that I did here and from other things. So he has a huge instruction about deep meditation that is not exactly, certainly not in the West, is not the sadhana that we're, we're following at this point, but it's, it's Dwapar Yuga rising. And some of these teachings that are not appropriate for now, and I don't think they'll be appropriate for a few generations. It's not like next year we get to do it. But I imagine that at some point, this is my imagination only, I have nothing to base this on, but it's quite possible that 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 journal will someday be an important guidebook for people. There's a few letters from Master to Rajasi where he suggests different ways. You know, Master, here's Rajasi, he he can meditate in samadhi, and Master is suggesting various things that he can try and do. You know, or or you'll find this might be worthwhile and that might be worthwhile, that there's a whole level of learning and experience um, that begins at a point that we tend to think of as an ending point. that's, That's sort of where I was going with all of this. So if you think also of these masters having over a planetary cycle, you know, they're planting seeds. The Rubaiyat, which was written quite some time ago, was interpreted by master just, you know, recently. Um, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras have a new incarnation through what Swamiji did. And of course the Bhagavad Gita, which is just so interesting. The Bhagavad Gita just never seems to go away. You know, it's just, it, here it is again. And it's, Master said that millions will find God through that. That's the next one that I'll read in a moment. But how incredibly important it was. And here's Arjuna and Krishna, Babaji and Master, 
playing out that whole incarnation and then and then it was their dialogue that made the scripture and then master's born all this time later and he goes and he gets that same dialogue which has been guiding a huge portion of the world all this time and he picks it up again and he recreates it and then then predicts that it's going to be the vehicle for enlightenment really seemingly for dwapar yuga it's just you you several things happen one is one realizes one has no idea what's really going on which is relaxing in a certain way because you don't have to try so hard to understand you just have to sort of play your part we also realize if we're in a mood of detachment instead of self-concern you just realize what an incredible long saga is going on here and that our little part of it is really much more about our consciousness and our vibration and whatever we're able to manifest in the material world, we should certainly try as hard as we can. But we're, we're just little bits of in a 5,000-piece in a puzzle where we're just putting our little tiny bit in, but every one of them counts. You know, I, I'm not a person who works puzzles, but I have friends who've done them, and you have a, those thousand pieces out there and you just keep going and going and going and every single little part of it is necessary or else it's out of balance. And it's really, Dwapar Yuga is being assembled and it's a million piece puzzle and everybody puts in a tiny bit of it and the masters are running it from a wholly other angle. Um, why don't you pass the microphone over? I don't understand when Master said millions will find God through this book. We've been studying it with the Kriya Satsang group, and it's very interesting. But what exactly did he mean by that? Let me just see. I think it's the very next one. I'm just going to read the first of number 317 since you just asked. In May of 1950, after finishing his Gita commentary, Master exulted, a new scripture has been born. Millions will find God through this book. Not just thousands, millions. <clears throat> I know it. I have seen it. So those were his exact words. You know, um, when Krishna and Arjuna had that conversation, it was the transition between Kali and Dwapara, but it was down. It was from Dwapara into Kali, and the whole cycle until 1700 has all been Kali Yuga, and for for 2,400 years or so, it kept going down. So that scripture was dropped into the mass consciousness, but it was dropped into a very, um, the lowest uh, the lowest, in terms of society as a whole, the lowest point of evolution. So society as a whole, its, its capacity to really understand the Gita as a whole, not just the saints, was extremely limited. So it's a little bit like Jesus who was born and died, you know, just at five, uh, it was 500 years after his death that the nadir of Kali Yuga occurred. So he was born when it was really dark and it just got worse and worse. But nonetheless, fully self-realized masters come at that time 
and they give us their whole message and their gospels are written or their gitas are written, but it would be self-evident that the, 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 the capacity to receive that message in terms of actually shifting the vibration of the planet, it, it would be impossible for it to happen. It would have to wait till a higher age, which also tells you how long the rhythm is and how differently change takes place than a mass fad or something like that, that it's, it's a real subtle. Swamiji remarked that Christianity was, it was 300 years before Christianity really became a, a recognized force. And that was when King Constantine, I guess, had a vision and he saw the cross and it saved his army or something like that. So he declared that his whole kingdom would be Christian. So suddenly everybody becomes a Christian. And as Swami said, you know, there's no such thing as mass conversion. It's like a whole country, they don't really become Christians, just the country becomes Christian. Because you're not a Christian unless you yourself have had that experience of Jesus and really accepted it. So the Gita, even though because India um, is this continuous culture and has kept it alive, it hasn't been altogether lost. But what Master wrote was, and then really I have to say what Swami wrote, but what Master presented was the full implication of the Gita, which simply could not have been presented earlier. There were lots, of, there have been, of course, lots of commentaries and lots of saints and lots of, you know, countless ones. But, but Master himself said that no one until now has really expressed the totality of what the Gita could express. But of course, that, that isn't because no one could, because all those other uh, avatars and saints and self-realized beings were perfectly capable of understanding it. It was just the planet itself didn't magnetize it because it wasn't, there was no point in it. It had to be drawn out by the need of those souls who are incarnating and those souls who will incarnate. In the festival of light, there's so much in the festival of light. A prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. And what you have to realize is that unless that prayer goes out to the infinite, there's no, no magnetism to draw. It's not like God, you know, takes form to impose himself on people and, and whip us into shape. It's, it's a response from the divine um, because there are, there's, there's a, a receptivity to greater understanding. And whether that is society as a whole that needs redirecting or enough of us praying. Swamiji wrote a little pamphlet called A New Dispensation. He wrote that back in the early 80s. But it was when enough people pray sincerely enough, is how he put it, it draws from the divine a special ray of grace. And so somehow or another, they, there's a huge tradition among the, that the Essene community, you know, was praying for the Messiah and was, was preparing itself for the coming of the Messiah and knew that the Messiah was going to be born because they, they were, um, 
the most enlightened remnant from a higher age. You know, as as society had gone from Dwapara even from higher than that, a, a remnant, just like in the Himalayas, a, a remnant of of pure self-realization, Sanat and Dharma, has always existed even when the planet got really dark. And a tremendous amount of the power and wisdom of India was just taken up to the mountains and, and held there by the masters until it was time to send Lahiri back, you know, to do it. This is the, that's the story. So the Essenes held in, and became more and more of a secret society within uh, a, an increasingly corrupt uh, priesthood in the Jewish tradition. The Essenes were the true, and they had this, this unbroken lineage. This is, you know, this is semi-historical. I mean, this is intu- intuitively revealed from sources that I believe to be true. And just, it, it, it makes sense. And uh, so they had this unbroken lineage that told them that where they had much more knowledge, a t- true understanding than the society around them. And they had to be secret because the powers that be did not respect them. And they, it was a little, they had to be careful in that time. But they knew Jesus was coming and they were ready for him. And they stood by him and they were his people. You know, just like a lot of us incarnated to help Swami and a certain number of people incarnated to help Master. And some of the people who incarnated to help Master were his boyhood friends. You know, it's just like the people are there. And in Jesus' life, his cousins were also part of his story. Maybe his brother. It depends on whether you believe that he had brothers or not, and so on. But, uh, so let me let me just go back to where I was. So there has to be a call. And, and even we say, a prayer, it goes up in wordless yearning, a prayer for redemption, we say in this festival of light. The sun, the moon, the stars, and from the hearts of mankind everywhere, goes up in wordless yearning, a prayer for redemption. And then later, a prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. A ray of your light flashed out from the heart of infinity, burst downward through night skies of consciousness, and was born on earth for the redemption of mankind. Your chosen people have always been those of every race and nation who choose thee. It's just tremendous, tremendous teaching in that. And also, it's not only cosmic, it's also individual. That's how it happens. We pray, and God comes. And if we don't call him, he doesn't, he doesn't manifest himself to us. He's always there, but we can't see him. Because he doesn't impose. So now coming back to the Gita. So we have this, you know, Krishna incarnating at that transition to prepare the world for this shift. And when you read the whole Mahabharata, there are these wonderful dramatic moments where, um, you know, Krishna does things that are considered dishonorable and against Dharma. He holds, uh, Arjuna has made a, a an impulsive vow that says if he doesn't slay a certain warrior by the time the sun goes down then he's going to commit he's going to kill himself and the hour is coming and then the the news goes out this is the mahabharata story the news goes out so they the other side takes that warrior and they protect him and it looks like arjuna is not going to be able to kill him before the sun goes down and then he's going to have to keep his word and take his own life so krishna plays a trick 
everybody thinks the sun is going down, but Krishna makes it seem as though the sun has gone down. I believe he blocks it with a, a cloud, and then everyone thinks it's sunk behind the horizon. He blocks it with a cloud, holds it in the sky. Everybody thinks, well, Arjuna didn't do it. And up until then, in Dwapara Yuga, you know, honor was everything. So here's honor that he said he was going to do it. He didn't. Arjuna's going to die. It's all going to be great. The guy lets down his guard. And then Krishna says, now, kill him now. And because Arjuna's the disciple of Krishna, he goes and kills him. But it's a, you know, it's a terrible, dishonorable thing to have done. But Krishna said, evil is on, in the ascendant. You, can't, you have to take a little bit of evil yourself in order to win now. We just, we just can't play by the same rules. And it's just a huge scandal. The second one is Yudhisthira, who's the eldest of the Pandavas, and is so pure that his chariot rides a few inches off the ground. That's how they describe him. And uh, his guru, Drona, is also just too powerful to defeat. And so Krishna says, you know, we're never going to be able to defeat Drona unless he himself decides, you know, to, to give up. And his son was Ashwatthama, and Ashwatthama he was very attached to. So Krishna makes Arjuna, Yudhisthira, go to Drona and say, Ashwatthama is dead. This is a lie. Yudhisthira has never told a lie ever in his life. So he goes, and he, because Krishna orders him to, he says to Drona, Ashwatthama is dead. And then he says under his breath, the elephant Ashwatthama. <laughs> But Drona thinks his son has died, has died and he loses his heart. And once again, Krishna says. So it, it's a very, I mean, it's a fascinating story. But just as Master was making, is making a transition for us up into Dwapar Yuga by being much more explicit and much more all-inclusive and bringing East and West together and bringing spirituality into the marketplace and making communities that are not just for renunciates, just all the things that we're doing, all of us are doing, making Kriya widely acceptable to everyone. All of this is for Dwapara Yuga. Arjuna and Krishna did exactly the same thing, except preparing for the world to get darker and darker. The Mahabharata and the Ramayana were specifically written because the age would become so dark. Nobody could understand anything directly. They were, the only way that truth could be preserved was through stories. So they converted these into these wonderful tales. And all through Kali Yuga, these, they were storytellers. And if, if you grew up in India at that time, and I don't know, you might be t- too young for it, but even a friend of mine who's not quite my own age, but he just grew up on these stories. And it was so interesting to me, a very good friend, um, he... Uh, very westernized, extremely competent in the modern world, very successful entrepreneur in his own business. But when he starts talking about the characters in those epics, it's like he's talking about his neighbors. You know, it's just like it's reality to him. The first time I saw it, it was I was totally charmed to just realize how the two realities are just so blended in his life. And even an autobiography of a yogi master says, my mother, you know, illustrated her disciplinary points with apt uh, examples from the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. And I think, I believe Master describes that he had rather a bittersweet relationship with the epics or something like that because they were so often used to discipline him because the values and the principles were kept alive through those stories. I, I'll go one step further. I was, uh, 
there's this temple outside of Delhi. I don't remember. It has a real name. We had a different name for it. Where this man who seemed to be a saintly man. It's a huge, huge, as big as a football field with all these temples. And they have all these statues. And they have some, they have some very good art in that temple. And there was one, I, it was circular. And I don't, it might have been the Mahabharata or it might have been Shiva. I don't really even know the tales. But there was a whole series of um, bas-relief, you know, carved into the wall, not three, to, comes out from the wall. Beautiful, all the way around, telling the stories. And I was sitting in there once when I was visiting, and a group of, of what, what people euphemistically call villagers, which is people who are not well-educated and um, just from the country. And a group of villagers came in, and I couldn't speak their language, but I could tell what they were doing. They knew all the stories from the pictures. And, they were, and it was so thrilling to them to see this artistic representation of the stories they'd been hearing all their lives. And I really understood, oh yeah, this is how the culture was kept together, just through these stories, because everybody remembers them. And where they can't get the philosophical truth, they can at least get the principles. But now we're coming out of Kali Yuga, and we don't have to couch it in symbolism anymore. anymore. You know, Jesus, the, the, the trouble with the Bible is even the deep teachings are so obscure in there. And you, you, you finally tease out some symbol that you can then explain, but it's also oblique. And in the Bible, they often say Jesus took the disciples t- to the side and taught them, but none of that's written down. So you presume he was more able with his most advanced disciples to really talk to them about what they were doing, but his general teaching is all very symbolic and parables there's no need for that now because we understand to start with the fact that the whole world is energy. It's not what it seems. The physics are, the physicists are just, you know, going great guns with all of these theories that are really the scientific side of Vedanta, of what the, the, sa- the sages have been saying forever. It's really not there. It's just manifested from somewhere else. Don't ask me. I don't know how to do it. I was with Anand Stickney, who's one of the leaders in Assisi. Uh, he, we, he was in India for a while. He, he actually, uh, they lived, he lived like 25 years in Italy illegally, and then finally his wife, Kirtani, got legal status, which gave him legal status. But just before she got it, he, he got caught. He left the country, I was remembering, he left the country through Switzerland, which they never did because Switzerland notices they always left through Italy so they didn't get noticed. So he got exiled from Italy for about three months while his wife straightened it out. So he was, he was in India living with Swami. And I was over there visiting and we were doing, uh, we did a class together. And at, uh, he got up there, he gave his whole class on the atom. It was very interesting a whole, I think we might have even been talking about Korea. I'm not sure what we were teaching. His whole class was on the atom. It was fascinating. When it was my turn, I, I stood up and I said, I have never thought about the atom, not even once. You know, this is more, more I've heard the word atom more times, you know, in this last half an hour than I've ever heard it in my life. But he was seeing the whole spiritual path. I don't remember anything he said now, but it was interesting at the time. But that's what the physicists are doing. So it's not even coming from religion. It's just coming, science is just the exploration of that which is 
which is actually another definition of Sanatana Dharma, that which is. They haven't quite gotten to the point where they see all the implications. Well, that's not true. Some of them are seeing the implications. If this is all true, then the nature of humanity, the nature of life, the nature of death, it's all different than people think it, have been saying it. It's where Stephen Hawking was going. If time can go forward, why can't time go backward? You know, I don't understand it when he says it, but I understand it when Master says it. So all of that is to say that the Gita that was planted at that transition is now actually going to come into its, its own culturally. Swami often comments that um, Master's teachings, the teachings of Master of self-realization will come to define society in the same way that large parts of the world have been defined by Buddhist philosophy and large portions are defined by Christian philosophy. And it's not even that everybody is a Christian or not. It's just those principles are basically the guiding principles. And uh, Swamiji says that self-realization will become just the way people think. Well, how is that going to happen? It has to be articulated in this causal, astral, physical. Things have to start with ideas. People have to get the ideas. They have to understand them properly. A few people, and then it begins to filter down. If the, if the causal level is not clear, then everything else that follows is also confused, which is why I believe last week I was suggesting to you to put out the effort to try to get clear on the, on the really the simplest principles so we don't get confused. Otherwise, everything is, everything is muddled after that. So the Bhagavad Gita is going to gradually, just like, well, think about the Bible. I mean, the Bible was written, and for a long time, it was held by the church. And then there was this period of time. It was around the time of, I guess, Henry VIII, who was the one who, wasn't he the one who took England away from the Catholics so he could have all the wives he wanted, or whatever the deal was. But what was also happening at the same time is that the Bible had been translated into English and it was being printed and distributed. And it was a huge thing. You were, you were a heretic for doing that. But what was happening was the Bible was coming into people's hands. Prior to that, only the priests, only the priests could read it. Only the priests had it. It was in Latin. And if you weren't educated, you, and so the only way you knew what was in it was when the priests told you. But you see what that does in terms of power and other things. But when they translated it into the vernacular, whatever that was, and printed it and handed it to you, then all of a sudden, you, you, were, you could make up your own mind. And then gradually over time, I mean, think how many Bibles are distributed in the world and how many people read or can read the Bible. There was a time, not anymore, when every hotel room, remember, You'd open the drawer and there was a Bible in the drawer there. It was the, the mission of some society to put a Bible in every hotel room. And so it was a common thing. Oh yeah, there's a Bible. You'd open the drawer and there was a Bible if you wanted one. But think, see how just all pervasive that was? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was, was with God and the Word was God. I mean, people just have these things in their mind. And millions doesn't even begin to describe how many people have been awakened and influenced by it. So therefore, this is what Master is saying about 
what he wrote because for the first time, and I, I don't think it's in that this particular. No, he does. He does talk about it. I'll just let me just read the rest of it. That master says, "Now I appreciate why my guru Sri Yukteswar would never let me read other Gita commentaries. He didn't want me to be influenced by the ideas of others. Instead, what I did was tune into Biasa, the author of the Gita." And ask him to dictate it through me. That's no mean um, promise. <laughs> it was inspiring to watch how he dictated. He would gaze up into the spiritual eye, go deep within, and only and then only begin speaking. Master continued. Other Gita interpretations are not fully rounded, as scriptures ought to be. Even Swami Shankaracharya's commentaries were one-sided in the sense that they completely rejected duality um, though duality for people living in the world is a daily reality that is why Krishna says in the Gita that the path of yoga is higher than the path of wisdom which Shankaracharya taught the path of yoga accepts actual human realities and works with them as they are instead of dismissing them as non-existent. They are illusory, certainly, but for all that, duality exists as a dream exists. It just isn't what it appears to be. Oh, my God. Okay, but I mean, there you have it. It's like even Shankaracharya, who was master himself for Sri Yukteswar, apparently, only talked about it from one angle because it wasn't time... I mean, and here he goes to Babaji and assumes that he's just going to take up his residence there in the Himalayas. It's like he has a wife and a family, but who cares? He's found his guru. He's lived with his guru in the Himalayas. Here, seize your blanket. Here's your water pot. I've kept it all for you. So Lahiri's natural thought is that, you know, my life in the, in the world of duality is over. Why would I go back? But Babaji says, no, actually, you have to go back. It was no accident that we didn't meet until you were fully engaged in the illusory world, which isn't what it seems, but nonetheless is something. And then Master is inspired to take this scripture and show how you can live in the illusory world and use it to find a greater reality. So Master said, this method of living is going to be this, the pattern of the future and that millions of people will be drawn to God from this reinterpretation. It, it's very interesting. In, uh, well, probably was about 2007. I don't have, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the date. Yeah, because he wrote the Gita commentary in 2006. Swami, Swami did. And then, of course, you have this, let me just go back. Then you have this interesting interplay because there's two versions of this book available now. You know, Master wrote the manuscript and he had Swami sit right next to him and they went over the whole manuscript. And Swami was supposed to help him edit. Swami was 24 by that point. Um, and there they are, you know, working on it. But he went over it with Ma in Master's presence. He went over every page of that manuscript. 
I went, we saw the manuscript at a certain point, and there's Swami's handwriting with little notes in the corner about you know ways it was going to be worked on. Swami, of course, was gifted as a writer, but he was not developed yet at that point. And then it was given to Taramata to edit. It was Master wanted it, thought it, announced it would be published in 1951. She said that was just impossible. She wasn't going to get to it, get it done. And then he died, of course, at the beginning of 52. And there it was. And then uh, Rajasi took over, then Rajasi got sick, then Dayamata took over SRF. And for reasons of her own, Taramata felt that Dayamata couldn't manage on her own and that she had to help Dayamata run SRF. And as a consequence, she stopped working on the editing. So there it was. And it was published 40 years later. It was published in the late 90s is when that book was finally published. Late 90s. Yeah, I think that's when it was. So in all that time, so Taramata, who was the one who was supposed to edit it, never did. And then in, in, within SRF, the responsibility went to Marinalini Mata. If Swami had still been in SRF, it would have gone to him because that's what Master had assigned him. But he was beyond the pale by that point, so she did it. But it took her 40 years to do it. And when it was finally published, which is the book, two-volume set called God Talks to Arjuna, Swamiji says, and I've never seen the manuscript, so I don't know, he says the whole tone of it was changed. As he put it, Master's manuscript was easy and fun to read, he said, and it was edited to be scholarly with with hundreds of footnotes that Master never put into it. I, I have to honestly say I've never read it, so I don't know. I, I own it, I've looked at it, but I, I just can't get into it. But Swami was very, very disappointed. And he is in a position to know because he was completely engaged in that. And, and he just couldn't understand how millions of people could find God through that book because it, it's just too dense to get into. So other people may find feel it there I, because I said I've never read it, so I don't know. But even people who do read it say it's dense. And Swami was just very disappointed. And, and, but they call it God Talks to Arjuna. And they must, the subtitle must be Master's Commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, but that's what it's called. And they're very pleased with it, and SRF believes that it is the book that Master wanted. Swami did not see it as that book. And then worried about it, you know, just, it was a constant concern for him as to how he was going to deal with this because he knew he could never get the manuscript. And even the magazine articles, um, let's see exactly what we didn't actually, we didn't have legal right to them either. We lost the legal right to them or it was ruled against us. So there Swami is. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He feels that he's been commissioned by Master to do this. He feels, he hoped. It wasn't that he wanted to do it. He sincerely hoped that the book that SRF published would please him. Because if it had, it would be done. It wasn't like he wanted to do it. He just wanted it done. But he did not feel it was the book that, that Master had intended. And then in 2006, when he was living in India, he just finally decided, he, he decided he would write a small book. And so he started writing what he thought was a small book. And then after he got into it, he realized that Master was gifting him with essentially perfect recall. 
He said he couldn't remember the the words of the manuscript, but he could remember Master's interpretation of every stanza. So when he would just look at the stanza, he would re, he would remember, and it wasn't just that he knew, but he would remember. He would remember Master speaking better. He would remember being with Master. And then he would understand what that stanza meant, which was the whole point. And then he would write in an inspired way. It took him two months to write that book. I mean, two months. Like, that's a 10-year project. Just, he did it in no time at all. Some of us were in India at the time. He wrote 10 pages a day every day. And he just did, no matter. He had 30, 30 people came and visited him in India during the two months that he was working on that book. I was one of them. And he would go out to lunch and he would take us shopping and he would sit and have meals with us and we'd have satsangs and then he would write 10 pages. He, he was writing faster than we could read. Narayani writes about it in her book too. We'd just, he'd put it down on the table and we'd all come over and you'd sit and read it. And then it, it took, you know, three weeks of editing which was nothing for what, for him, for normal. But then he felt this is the book that Master intended. Now, I, I put all that in, and now I'll go back. In 2007, uh, Mr. Kartikeyan, who, was, uh, who used to be the head of what is the equivalent of the FBI in India, he was a very high-level uh, government figure. Uh, was it Rajiv Gandhi who was assassinated? When he was assassinated, Mr. Kartikeyan was in charge of the investigation. I mean, he was a very high-level man. So because of that connection, and he's, because he's just a wonderful man, um, he arranged for Swamiji to meet President Abdul Kalam. At that time, he was the president of India. He was a very well-respected figure. And because uh, President Kalam was interested in education, Swami took the opportunity to write up a prospectus and a curriculum for what he called the Living Wisdom, the Yoga Institute of Living Wisdom. And it was a, a college curriculum. Uh, uh, the idea of starting a college level with a, a curriculum... And he, he charted out all the different subjects that you would teach in a normal college curriculum and in many cases briefly summarized how you would approach it and then listed writings of Master and his own books that could be used for that. It's a, it's a marvelous document and it is essentially, it's the curriculum for Dwapara Yuga. It's like if if we're all going to be raised up as citizens of Dwapara Yuga, this is how and what we study. Now, this is all coming back to the Gita because in that document, Swamiji writes, now that the Gita commentary has been written and published, he said this whole curriculum is possible because the Gita commentary is the hub of the wheel. And every other subject can now be understood because once you understand what the Gita intended, then you can study chemistry and you can study astronomy and you can study theater and you can study English and you can study all these things because the hub of the wheel is the Gita commentary. And what they're doing in India now, as I understand, with the Indira Institute, which many of you have heard about, which is the, uh, the woman who's the, the, the real inspiration behind it, I'm not, I may have it confused a little bit, but as I understand it, it, it came to her that, of course, the Gita is the center of the project. And she, and she only, either she didn't remember or she hadn't yet read that that's exactly how Swami put it. 
that it was just, that's exactly right. Now that's really quite a statement, that all of this study can be done because it all hangs together once you understand the Gita. And see, the difference between the Gita and the New Testament, even in Kali Yuga descending, is that it's explicit. The poor Christians, God bless them, and Jesus himself, they they just, they have to, there's so many things they can't answer because they just got caught in these strange uh, theological impossibilities. You know, Jesus said, I am, the, I am the only son of God. No one comes unto the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the light, or whatever he phrased it. And as I was saying on Sunday yesterday, or the day before, it's all about the pronoun I. And because the West decided that Jesus, there was no revelation before Jesus and there's no revelation after him, it's really hard to make sense out of the whole thing. And then a few hundred years afterwards, they decided that reincarnation wasn't a good idea because it gave people too much latitude and the institution wanted to have more control. This is all Kali Yuga descending. They wanted to be able to declare what was true and what wasn't. And if you could just reincarnate, it it wasn't convenient. So they took reincarnation out of the Bible. This is an historical fact. And so now you don't have reincarnation. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Well, it doesn't make any sense unless you have reincarnation. And then Jesus had to be this just thing that happened. There's no context for avatars descending and souls attaining self-realization and returning as self-realized masters. Christianity and Judaism both, they're just stranded out there because they've taken these core concepts away. But the Gita's got them all. You know, Arjuna objects to killing his relatives and Krishna says, you think they die, they don't really die. They just take off their bodies, you see them fall, I see them rise. You, you know, I've had countless lives, I remember them all, you just don't remember them. Whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I, the infinite Lord, take visible form. I mean, just there you have it. And then all of a sudden, the whole story makes sense. And even Jesus' life makes sense all of a sudden once you can extricate it from the institutional imperatives that have just paralyzed it. Okay, but all of that, sure, millions are going to find God. Because through this book, these ideas will begin to permeate out into society, and the book itself may become like the Bible, and everybody knows it, and many people study and read it. This whole institute in India could have a tremendous effect on that country because it's being started with so much force at such a high level and so well. I mean, that alone could just start influencing millions of people. Swami did three or four different full internet series just on the Gita commentary. And he said he did it because Master said millions would find God through this book. And he thought, I better do my part. So three, I think three different times he did a full internet series of a, you know, 50 programs or 30 programs or 100 programs, just all in the Gita, so that people will gradually realize, oh, this is the hub of the wheel. Once I have all of this clear, then I know how to live. And Master's teachings then can 
<clears throat> be the defining force. As Swami said, even if people don't remember his name or don't know his name, they'll nonetheless be influenced by these ideas. So we have to just step aside. And you also have to realize it's all happening on the causal level first, then the astral, then the material. We think that how many copies of this book can be sold and who's going to read them. But what we're really doing is we're launching ideas that inspire energy that finally result in change. And of course, writing the book is part of it. But that's, you know, that's how it all happens. Well, that was interesting. Good question, Sarah. Yeah, okay. It happens to be, oddly enough, right where we are in the book. I was thinking of it as a... Is a short-term thing. Now, this is not going to be a oh, long, nothing is short-term. long-term thing. Oh, no. I mean, but no, our lives aren't short-term. You know, the little bit of experience that we have right here, when we stand back and look at it, we realize, you know, we're just, it's, it's, it's three pieces of the puzzle of our particular thing, and we laid them in. You know, and oh, look, we got all three of those pieces in, so now we'll work on the other 4,716, you know. But nonetheless, they're all there. And we'll just put them all in. And they seem so, they loom so large in the moment, but they're not. Let's take a little break. So I was uh, wondering about a parallel between uh, Gita and the New Testament or Bible. Uh, it was about the fact when Jesus talks about himself and refers, I mean, uses the pronoun I as the way to the truth and the light and realization right. of God and hundred things. Uh, Krishna says such things in yeah. Bhagavad Gita as well. He says exactly well. the same, right. And so, I mean, I was just thinking that uh, at least in then this one respect, if it is not helpful in New Testament, it is not also helpful oh, in no, Bhagavad Gita as well. No, no, go ahead. Uh, because, so when he says that I am the beginning of the beginning and I am the end of the end and I am the spirit in all living beings and I am the best in this and I am the best in that and he goes on describing himself for a chapter or two in Bhagavad Gita. So he is essentially, uh, I mean this this can easily be construed as, as Krishna as a person which a lot of people also worship as a god rather than a self-realized uh, example that could be followed. Well, it's all of the things are true. It doesn't fall. It doesn't. It doesn't parse apart quite as neatly as you're doing it. But it's so. The question is. So the question is. So that is it? Is it like why did these guys make it hard for us by by using the pronoun I? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, they don't make it hard for us. It's exactly the right pronoun. It's exactly the right teaching. And Jesus was perfectly clear. It wasn't Jesus who wasn't clear, and it wasn't even necessarily his disciples who didn't get it. It's subsequent generation of church people who begin to change it. In, in the Indian context, there's an understanding that a person, uh, that a, an individual entity, there's a word for it, the jiva. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of words in the Indian tradition. There's the concept of moksha. There's the idea of an avatar, um, all of these, and not the way the avatar word is being used, but a fully self-realized being who returns without... Jesus said, I alone am born without sin. And if you understand self, uh, Sanat and Dharma, you know that means he had no karma. 
which is that he had completely, he was master of the three gunas. He was triguna rahitam. He was free. And so he was not compelled back by his unlearned lessons. That's what sin is. So, so when he, he gave all the right answers, except because there was so little context for it, and because it immediately went into Kali Yuga descending. It just never had a chance. It immediately got... And, and then the Gnostics and the church did battle for a few centuries. And the Gnostics understood it more intuitively and spiritually, and the church wanted to build an institution and have control. And eventually the church wiped out the Gnostics, obliterated their reality from history, declared that they were all heretics, although Swami said some of them were wacky, but some of them were also good, that they just obliterated them. And so most people don't even know it ever happened. They just think... See, the church tells you what you're supposed to think, that they are an unbroken, unwavering, absolutely true line from Peter right to the present Pope. And they've got it absolutely right, which, excuse me, is exactly what SRF says. You know, the president of SRF knows what Master wants. I was with him. Don't you think I ought to know this is what it is? And everything is according to the blueprint. It's just like, among the other reasons why I become impatient with SRF is it's so unoriginal. It's just Catholic Church just right down just right down the middle of that same road because it's a karmic inclination. And, you know, we at Ananda always just figured we're going to win this time. Last time as Gnostics we lost, but this time we're going to win. Swami was an, an, by no means sanguine about it. He thought that, the, you know, the karmic forces are much more powerful than that. It's not just we just want it to be this way, so it's going to be this way. This inclination to, to formalize it, to dogmatize it, to make it like this, to make it secure, this is what we are. I mean, it's very popular. Human nature loves that. So often at Ananda, people will want me to tell them how it is. And I have to say, hmm, no answer like that. Like, it just depends on you. It depends on the people. It depends on the circumstance. There's no dogma. There are principles that you can intuit very clearly, but there's no dogma. Swami described the, quote, blueprint in the ether, which has sort of acts like it's a 200-year detailed business plan. He said is actually a vibration. And what we do is we attune ourselves to that vibration, and that's what the blueprint is. And whatever is is in tune with that vibration. That's how we tell. It's not a question of this is what's going to happen now and this now. Now, going back to the I, but I is exactly the right word because the entire question of the spiritual path, and there's whole, there's whole lineages that the whole question is, who am I? And you just keep answering that question, who am I? And you answer it on a more and more and more subtle level until finally, I am infinite. I am one with spirit. You know, I am God. Although it's a little dangerous to say that, Master suggests we say God has become me rather than I have become God. Because if the I is still a little dicey about who it is, that can get a little goofy. But th- they use that pronoun precisely because it's, it's the roadmap. I am the beginning, I am the end. That which I do, ye shall do in greater things. I and my Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's telling us the truth. 
It's just that we have to understand it uh, with something bigger than the egoic self. And the fact that people haven't doesn't mean that the truth is wrong. There is no clearer, better way to say it. And, and so it's, I mean, it's magnificent, really. And what's happening now is that Master had a dual assignment from Babaji, which is to bring back the original teachings of Jesus, what he actually taught. The light on the high altar of my, of my church is growing dim, though still lit on lower altars of good works. The noble taper of inner communion with the Lord burns low and is ill-attended. Let us together, united by Christ's love, set lights ablaze on that high altar once again. Thus a new ray of light was sent to earth through the great masters of our path. And that's, Jesus is part of our lineage. And Jesus planted it, and it saves civilization. And you know, Swamiji and Master incarnated a couple of times to keep Christianity from being obliterated by other forces so that now it can come up in the right way. These are really, these are, I love these stories. I mean, who could make this up? You know, it's just so, it's just so magnificent. And it's not really a question of our line of gurus, although we're part of it. It's, it's light. It's just bearing the light. Just being the, carrying forward these wonderful ideas. Because people love Jesus, and Jesus touches the lives of people and makes people saints yesterday and tomorrow. I mean, there's a real power there, even in the midst of all of it, because the dogma is just the dogma, but Jesus, is, Jesus stands completely apart from the dogma. Churchianity versus Christianity. And for reasons, who knows, but, you know, if, if in fact Jesus and Master were the... Master was Jesus, and we you have all the other gurus coming to pay him homage in the cradle, you sort of wonder, as Swami said, where was Master in that story? because all his other people are there. But it's like they're just, they just keep taking care of this planet. This is back to where I was at the beginning. Fascinating. And now East and West, which is Christianity, and because Chris, the, teach, the original teachings of Jesus are also Judaism. So, you know, my Jewish circle wants to know why we don't always go, also go back to Judaism. Because if we go back to Jesus, we've gone back to Judaism. We're pulling Judaism. Christianity never existed. Everyone in it was Jewish. He was Jewish. And that none of them ever stopped being Jewish. Except when the synagogues kicked them out. And then they had to go find somebody who would listen. And then gradually it became something else. But really that wasn't Jesus' fault or any of the apostles. Does all, all that make sense? Yeah. Yes, I think it makes sense. And sort of it also connects that probably... Uh, when these teachings were delivered the first time in Bhagavad Gita uh, and Master had to reincarnate just to clarify so that the, the first time around <laughs> maybe you guys did not get it so here is well, uh, the okay. detailed yeah. you know, uh, footnote on this that this is what I really meant <laughs> it's also true but it but it served see it's like um this is a long cycle. You know, this, this yuga cycle just keeps going. See, there's two, there's two dramas. One drama is the planet and whatever uh, state of enlightenment or darkness it's in, whatever the balance of light and dark is on the planet based on where we are in the yugas. And that's, that's a, 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 an astronomical phenomenon that is a physical reality having to do with the energy from the 
grand center of the galaxy and where we are in relation to that just makes this planet brighter or duller. You know, all the inventions of the last hundred years, they were always there to be invented. Swami's father was an oil geologist and he went to Romania and developed oil fields there. Swami was born in Romania and that was his father's project for like 10 or 15 years. And the oil had always been bubbling up out of the ground. You know, standard oil company did not invent oil. It's just that somebody looked at it and figured out that something could be done with it. And that's all these things. It's just, it was always there, but that just nobody noticed. They just didn't know how, because they thought in really physical terms and they just didn't know how to deal with it. But then the planet begins to pep up. And as the planet begins to pep up, from the astral world, beings who are more in tune with that reality begin to incarnate. So you begin to get a system. You know, Steve Jobs couldn't have incarnated or wouldn't have served him to have incarnated too much earlier. He had a job a job to do right now where the particular vision he had of how things could be shifted was now. So he came now and did it. And he, you know, Master helped him. He read Autobiography of a Yogi. He was sent for the job. Kriyananda was, is, was way ahead of his time, but not too much. You know, he was able to start all of this, but nobody's really listening to him yet the way they will listen to him at some point, master the same. Um, So the end of all that was, oh yeah, so there's that whole human drama. And this is where Swami talks about these masters having this responsibility. Master incarnating as William the Conqueror and Fernando III, it's like they have a responsibility for the whole historical development of the thing. It's really quite like, it's very, very interesting. And then, but that's just the backdrop. Because the planet never gets gets its act together, you know, it's a, the the planet is a a, a playing field, a, a a college classroom, where just the circumstances are set up, but it it doesn't become self-realized. In fact, it just goes up and down and up and down and up and down. It never it never finishes. It just is. It rotates closer and farther away and closer and farther away and makes a more and less, more and less, more and less enlightened environment. The drama is the jiva. And the drama is that the jiva gradually, actually progresses from delusion to self-realization. And the yugas and the planet provide a backdrop, an appropriate backdrop, for the jiva to have its little experience. And and Master said we don't, this was earlier in the book, we don't come back to the same planet. We don't, we can't just say, I'm just going to cling to planet Earth till, till it reaches Satya Yuga and then I'll be here when it gets bright and then I'll get free. No way. We die, we're in the astral world, and if we're too gross for an elevated planet, we just go to a grosser planet. And if we're too refined for a gross planet, we go to an elevated planet or... We get sucked into these assignments, you know, where our gurus are coming down and we come down to help them. (laughs) But coming down to help them provides us the appropriate karmic opportunity that we need in order to grow because that's the only drama that really matters. Because the planet just comes and goes and comes and goes and that's why this idea of perfecting society and you know, even saving the species and all these different things, it all matters because it's a process for us to learn what we have to learn. 
But it's not, a, it's not an end in itself, which is actually, I, during the break I was talking about this, which is like, even in our ashram, in the, in the story of Ananda, we're, we're trying to function in this world. You know, we, we have to take care of our buildings, we have to advertise our classes, we have to figure out how to stream on the internet, you know, we have to do all these different things. But the whole purpose of Ananda is to provide opportunities for disciples of Master to serve his work. And, and it wouldn't serve us anything at all if we just hired a bunch of people to do everything for us. I mean, theoretically we could you know, serve by generating the money, but if we just pay people to, to make it happen, then it's, a whole, it's, it's just something completely different. What is the point of it? The whole point of Ananda is for disciples to be able to dedicate their lives to serving the Guru. Because by serving the Guru, we, we work out our karma, we expand our consciousness. And we try to serve as well as we can because in serving well, we master the gunas and we become free ourselves. So it, it all sort of wraps around itself but the mere fact that we could hire somebody to do it better is not, is not our, our mindset. It's our mindset. It, at a certain point in uh, the process of Ananda, the progress of Ananda, let me think what year it would have been, 78, 79, 80, which was a long time ago for you guys. Nobody in this room was there. Um, Swamiji started... Uh, after Ananda village burned burned in 1976, he started this huge outward thrust. And for the next three or four or five years, he was away from what we called Ananda, which was Ananda village. He he went back and forth across the country all during 1978. He went down to San Francisco and started an ashram there. He traveled to Europe. He was just really doing a huge amount. And after four four years or five years, he had a meeting at the village and he said you know, I think we've done enough. He said, it's never been my intention to build an empire. You know, because like some people would just have this idea that we just need to make this as big as we can. We have to conquer the whole world like businesses do. How big can we make this? He said, never been my intention to create an empire. I just wanted to make Ananda broad enough that everyone would have a meaningful way to serve. I mean, that just about summed it up. You know, we needed city centers, we needed schools, we needed a publishing company. You know, we needed these different things, but the reason we needed them was so that people could dedicate their life to serving Master and find a way to do it. Because that's the drama that's really happening. And some of us are just incredibly hungry to do that. And, you know, it's, he, was a, he was masterful at just continually creating opportunities for us to serve and then those opportunities created our spiritual growth because serving the guru is a wonderful way to grow. And yes, we try to do it well because you because otherwise you're tamasic. Yeah. So you have but but it, the doing it well is is for the sake of your consciousness. And because if you're trying to serve Master, you ought to do it well. And so, sometimes you may outsource something, but you don't start by saying, 
what's the most efficient way to get this done? You often say, in fact, how can we, how can we find an opportunity for so-and-so to serve? Because this person really needs or wants it. How can we get the most people involved? It's just, uh, it's a whole different, people are more important than things. We say that all the time, but then when we actually act on it, people accuse us of being stupid and inefficient. <laughs> because when people are more important than things, you just do it differently. Very complex, yes. So, uh, just to get one more perspective out of the uh, the objective that Swami set forth right. when when he said that it was to provide enough opportunities for everyone, uh, all of the people in Ananda to serve. Uh, well, for gu- disciples to serve whoever they are. Uh-huh. Yeah, for the disciple to serve uh, disciples to serve whoever they are. But I think the backdrop of it somewhere also includes that we would like to serve as a channel to uh, proliferate, if that is the right word, the teachings of our guru because we know that this is something useful for the world at large. Because your heart wants to share it. Right. So that's naturally what we're trying to do. So this is sort of the part of the way the people will actually end up serving. Yes. And uh, it's, it's all a very, there's no dogma that governs it. It's all just a very complicated balance of factors all the time. I mean, the most, the most difficult part from my position that I've been in here for many decades is an inability to manifest on the level that Swami did, where Swamiji was able to just continually start new enterprises and therefore continually give people really interesting opportunities. I mean, he just did it continuously. And you know, I've been able to do a tiny bit, but just nothing. And But it's been very, it's made me very sad because if if it was possible to manifest more, then more people would be able to be in the story. You know, and, and we haven't been able to open as many doors as I would like. It's just the way it is. I, I, you know, a person can't be more than they are. But I wish we, I wished I had been able to and I, I strive to be better at it. It just wasn't my, my karma. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. So here we are. And it's a, it's a new generation. It's a new era. Everything is different. My, the way I grew up is, you know, I'm, I'm really, the way I grew up doesn't exist, spiritually speaking. It's just a whole new, it's a whole new story. And so I, I watch with interest the, you know, the future careers of many of my guru bhais to just see how it is actually going to show because it's a, just a different reality now. So we have to think of it in terms of principles, not in terms of what did we do and therefore that's how it has to be done. But what's the principle? The principle is it's a, it's, it's a, it's a enorm- to serve the guru is an enormous spiritual opportunity that should be extended to as many disciples as, who, as will embrace it. An opportunity should not be squandered merely because it would be more efficient to hire somebody else to do it. Of course, if there's no one to do it, if it's the right way, you know, that there's no dogma. But serving the guru is, and the guru's work is, a huge part of being on the path, and it's a huge part of what makes Ananda what it is. I mean, in SRF, you can't serve very much. I, when I was there, I used them as a contrast, just because they are the contrast. On, on one occasion, when I went down there, I was actually going down there carrying a, I was, I was, it was a direct action that we were doing. And so I spent 
a Sunday morning standing in the parking lot of one of the SRF churches with one of the SRF volunteers whose service to the guru is every Sunday he helps the cars park for like three hours there. But he's so loyal to it and it's so important to him because it's the only opportunity he has. And if you're not a monk or a nun, you're not allowed to teach. So, you know, it's just the way they're set up. So the opportunities for, for really meaningful work are quite limited. And Swami describes at different times one of the things that Ananda offers in contrast to SRF, he just says this very calmly and objectively, is that there's more in opportunity for individual service at Ananda than there is in SRF because of their monastic definition. If you're not inside that monastery, it's, it's much harder to, to be hands-on with it. So, okay. Is there anything more about any of that? Did you, did you have anything to say? Okay, I, I galloped, I galloped past it. Okay, I'm going to be here next week. Then I'm going to be gone for two weeks. I'm taking a trip to, I'm going to go back to Israel. And I'm also going to go to Italy. So I'll be gone for about two and a half weeks, but I'll just miss two Tuesdays is what my plan is. Next week, yes, two weeks off. Okay? I intend to, but you can say goodbye to me next week because I'm leaving Wednesday morning a week. Okay? Oh, yes. We did uh, two. We did 316 and 317. Thank you.